Ladies, gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to this Fudson Film Podcast. I am Scott Morris, your least favourite member, and unfortunately today, the only one. For a variety of reasons, I'm the only one available to do anything, so you're stuck with me. I'll take a quick run through some of the films that I've seen this month, those being Dunkirk, Scribe, The Big Sick, David Lynch, The Art Life, and Shin Godzilla, so settle in and allow me to assault your ear holes. We'll kick things off with Dunkirk. After a disastrous military campaign to kick off proceedings in World War II, the British and French armies find themselves driven into the sea. Well over 300,000 souls found themselves on the beaches of Dunkirk waiting for an evacuation that was hoped would save 35,000 of them, but managed to retrieve more than 10 times that. The story of the evacuation, a race against time, ultimately facilitated by the civilian vessels requisitioned to aid the Royal Navy in ferrying the servicemen back home, still plays a large part in the British identity, a sort of victory snatched from impending catastrophic defeat that allowed Britain to hold out just until the New World bailed us out. The following Battle of Britain cements the plucky island alone against the world ethos that our more fervent nationalists like to think still holds true today, leading to some of our higher profile political missteps of recent times. However, unusually this month, we're not here to talk about the big issues of the collapse of empire, but simply the qualities of Chris Nolan's latest film, the utilitarianly titled Dunkirk. He has us join proceedings with the vast bulk of the unsightly running away already done and the orderly queuing phase underway, a British specialty. If only wars could be won by tea and scone consumption, we would be unstoppable. There's a few focal points we bounce around between, some of which tie up after rounds of quite needless light non-linearity. We've got Mark Rylance heading over the channel in one of the small civilian ships with his son and a local lad, picking up a shell-shocked Killian Murphy from a sunken vessel on the way. The bulk of the exposition is handled by Kenneth Branagh's Navy Commander Bolton and James Darcy's Colonel Winnant on the mole at the head of a line of soldiers waiting patiently for our evacuation. We spend quite some time following Harry Styles' Alex, looking for a way onto a ship and getting into various unpleasant scrapes along the way. Styles, I believe, was a member of a pop-rock combo that today's youth are fond of. The remaining main plank of the film is Spitfire pilot Tom Hardy's attempts to protect the ships from the Luftwaffe. While, as mentioned, some of this ties together, it's not so much an overarching narrative as it is small segments of the overall gestalt of Operation Dynamo. Nolan brings his usual sensibilities to the subject, but that may not be an unalloyed positive. Apparently 50 boats were found for this production, but it seemed like less than a dozen to me while I was watching it, and the total Allied ship count was closer to 700. There's not really the sense of scale that there needed to be on the maritime front, and this is perhaps the one instance where Nolan's overriding preference for practical effects hurts the film. Would it really have been such a terrible thing to CG in a few dots on the horizon? Between this and his hardline shooting on film stance, Nolan opens himself up to accusations of Ludditism, and if there's any filmmaker I'd like to see fully embrace all of the possibilities opened up by technology, in addition to the realism conferred by physical effects, it's Nolan. Instead, Chris Nolan has redefined war movies, and he has redefined them to mean close-ups of Tom Hardy's near-entirely flight-mask-occluded face. Actually, that's not fair. It very frequently shows him pulling a lever, too. It's a curiously sterile film. While many of the soldiers are left to a sad demise by bomb or by water, there's no grisly details shown a la Saving Private Ryan or, more recently, the meat grinder of Hacksaw Ridge. This is not, at heart, a film that is hammering home the war is hell narrative, in the literal, visceral sense. Instead, it's doing... I'm actually not quite sure what it's doing instead. It appears to be an examination of human character and reactions under stress, and it shows that humans, when presented with challenges, will respond to them in different ways. 
which is an observation up there with humans will attempt to breathe in and out when possible. It's refreshing in a sense to see a film that's dealing with this subject matter that doesn't go straight for the heartstrings, but all that seems to have done is stifle any vibrancy. Almost unbelievably, given what a list of events covered in this film would look like, I found most of Dunkirk heading towards the dull side. It's a very well produced and acted dullness to be sure, but dull nonetheless. Even the young Styles lad holds his own amongst some heavy hitters, but the result, and I accept I'm in the minority here, is not attention grabbing in the slightest. In this film's wake, there's been a resurrection of the talk that Nolan is the new Kubrick, and I feel there's some truth to this, in particular that this is his 2001 Space Odyssey, inasmuch as they're both immaculately produced films that I don't really understand the point of, I'm baffled by the regard they're held in, and ultimately, left cold by. Oh, and if you think, as the bulk of online outlets seem to be suggesting, that we missed Michael Caine's cameo, you are wrong. If there is one thing this podcast is uniquely attuned to, it is opportunities to use a 100, 100% mind you, impersonation of the increasingly natty right-wing firebrand slash beloved actor. He's like the British Clint Eastwood, I expect him to be lecturing a chair in the next story party conference. So with that bit of hipster non-conformism out of the way, we'll return back across the channel to look at Scribe. Former alcoholic Duval, played by Francois Cluzet, has been out of work for some time after a booze-induced breakdown at his former workplace. Seemingly out of the blue, he's contacted by the mysterious Clement, Demis Porialis, and offered a job in his ill-defined organisation. Needing the job, Duval doesn't ask too many questions and takes it. He's directed to go to a shabby apartment, outfitted with a typewriter and a selection of taped wiretap conversations that he's tasked with transcribing, which he does for many uneventful days before meeting another of Clement's employees, who soon takes an interest in one of the transcripts and enlists Duval's unknowing help in setting up business for himself. This swiftly grows awry, a bungled robbery, leaving Duval in the middle of the crosshairs of Clement's organisation and the security services investigating Clement, trying to turn Duval into an informant with an accessory to murder charge as leverage. Who can Duval trust, and can he avoid having his love interest dragged into all of this? No one, and no, respectively, which I trust doesn't spoil things, as if you've seen any of these noir-ish thrillers, you'll know which way the wind blows. I quite enjoyed Scribe. It's a suitably mysterious film for the most part, although I'd perhaps argue it's a bit light on detail even at the end. There's a coherent reason given for what was going on, given as part of an exposition drop at the end, but it's pretty much irrelevant to our lead character, who would need a couple of promotions to even be a pawn in the plans. There's a ream of unexplored questions about Clement's organisation and how they're in the position that they found themselves in, which may well best be left unexplored, as I doubt there could be a remotely believable answer. Still, it does leave the impression that most of the interesting points in the film have been left on the table. However, the performance from Francois Cuset is good enough to carry things through, and it's propelled forward at a good enough clip by director Thomas Kreutoff, his first feature as best I can gather, that the questions don't really occur until a well after the credits have rolled. As I say, I enjoyed this, but not enough to recommend taking extraordinary steps to track it down, except to any fans of the genre for whom this will provide a pretty reasonable amount of entertainment. Rom-coms next with The Big Sick. Kumail Nanjiani plays more or less himself in this more or less true story from earlier in his career. He's a jobbing stand-up comedian on the Chicago scene, looking for a big break when he meets and falls in love with Zoe Kazan's grad student Emily. However, between coming under pressure from his parents to follow the traditional arranged marriage route and the demands of his career, he fails to properly commit to the relationship and they break up. Not long after this, he receives a phone call telling him that Emily has fallen 
seriously ill very suddenly, and he was the only contact he could get hold of, and that he needs to sign off on inducing Emily into a coma so that the doctors can start poking and prodding and working what on earth has gone wrong. Not long after she goes under, her parents Beth, Holly Hunter, and Terry, Ray Romano, show up and dismiss Kumail, having heard the details of the messy breakup. Kumail doesn't let himself go so easily, however, regretting breaking up and promising to do as much as he can for Emily, which, let's face it, isn't a lot, but at least he can keep Terry and Beth company in this trying time, while also trying to keep his hopes alive of being invited to perform at the Montreal Festival. There was a first draft of this review in my head where I'd talk about how diversity is important in bringing us different stories to screen, but on reflection that's not entirely true this instance. The bare bones plot, as related above, isn't anything new at all, and it's essentially while you were sleeping, and there's probably early examples in 1995 if you went looking for them. What's different in this film, and where the vast bulk of the comedy is mined, is from Nanjiani's clash of cultures and perspectives as a second generation immigrant, having to deal with American and Pakistani cultural differences, and occasionally finding his positions halfway between or entirely against one or the other of them. Which sounds altogether tedious when put in those terms, but The Big Sick is solidly funny throughout and has at least a couple of really funny bits which I'm told in the trailers, but it was ever thus, I suppose. There's solid dramatic turns from Nanjiani Hunter, and of all people, Ray Romano, cast as the straight man to Nanjiani, and doing a pretty good job of it. So, the rom part of this is handled well enough, but the com part is, if not knocked out of the park, at least battered close to the home plate bleacher? I don't really know baseball well enough to attempt to modify the phrase, really. Sorry. I'm just trying to say that I enjoyed it quite a lot, and I'd recommend it to anyone. Its bases are loaded and belongs to us. Make your time. Sorry, look, I'm, I'm not familiar with the sport, but this film's good, okay? So we'll move on to a documentary called David Lynch, The Art Life, which is, of course, about David Lynch. We, of course, have a healthy respect for the works of David Lynch in this podcast, as evidenced by the length of our January 2016 episode where we did a deep dive on his career, but I would never claim to know all that much about Lynch himself. So, of course, I'd jump at the chance to find out a bit more about him, in his own words, with perhaps a slight hope, however unlikely, that this would help decipher some of Lynch's more obscure leanings. The Art Life is, fittingly, a slightly odd documentary, inasmuch as it's told entirely in Lynch's voice, with the presumable interlocutors and directors John Nguyen, Rick Barnes and Olivia Neargaard Holmes staying entirely off-camera and off-mic, giving this the feel of Lynch having sat down next to you with an armful of his creepy paintings and started telling you his life story. This covers his small-town upbringing, realisation of his interest in art, and the subsequent moves around the country to schools and such pursuing this goal of living the art life, ending up with him in the American Film Institute creating a razorhead where we leave him. What there's precious little of, and whether Lynch didn't deign to say or wasn't challenged to bring up, is any sort of drama or struggle whatsoever. While it's great that Lynch had, at least as he tells it, a happy upbringing with a supportive family and friends and opportunities to follow his dreams, the seeming ease at which he's had it doesn't make for a hugely interesting life story. Not that I'm suggesting that tragedies be invented to spice things up or even be wished upon Lynch at all, but given the art we've seen from him, both in his films and the paintings and sculptures that are shown in this documentary, there has surely got to be more layers to Lynch's worldview that this film either has no interest in or more likely that Lynch didn't want to talk about. I think, however, I might have got more understanding of his character by hearing him to refuse to answer that line of questioning than I would have done in hearing how he played in the mud as a kid. Still, Lynch is an engaging enough speaker, and hey, I'll take what I can get in terms of his story. 
I have rather less patience for the filmmakers' decisions to futz with their footage in a seemingly arbitrary selection of After Effects filters to graft on some visual quote-unquote flair, which, when juxtaposed with Lynch's unique, weird art, just looks a bit amateurish. Look, if you're a follower of David Lynch's work, while I don't really think I've gained an awful lot by watching this documentary, it's worth watching simply because he's so guarded about the meaning of his work that anything at all is a bonus in terms of background material. If, however, you've not spent the last decade and a half trying to unravel the meaning of the occurrences surrounding the man behind Winkies, there's not a great deal for you in David Lynch, The Art Life. We shall round things off today with Shin Godzilla, this of course being the follow-up to the highly successful Thigh Godzilla. <sighs> Following on from the surprising commercial and critical success of Gareth Edwards' boring Godzilla reboot from a few years back, Toho, the Japanese originators of the film from back in the rubber suit era, presumably decided that the time is ripe for their own reboot of the franchise, dormant in its home nation since 2004's now incorrectly named Godzilla Final Wars. This very much goes back to the roots of the story, with the baffled leaders of Japan scrambling for a plan on how to deal with this huge dino beast that's come up from the depths of the sea and started wandering around Tokyo, flattening buildings willy-nilly. Young firebrand Rando Yaguchi is tasked with assembling a team to work out a measured response after Godzilla's first incursion, while the rest of the government and military concentrate on the more traditional evacuate and bombard plans because, as it's a reboot, they do not have the rich history of this not working in the slightest to draw from. After a brief reprieve, Godzilla returns and it's revealed that it's giving off a radioactive signature and that it can mutate at will thanks to its nuclear waste dump based origins. Conventional weaponry, of course, does not work in the slightest, bouncing off our skyscraping reptilian friend and thus it's up to Yaguchi's team to stop Godzilla before the UN goes ahead with its backup plan, Operation Nuke Tokyo. In the past, I've idly wondered what the prefix Shin meant in Japanese, so it's nice to finally find out that it means bureaucratic red tape meetings hampering response to. Godzilla may be the poster star, but the greatest bulk of this film is based around a team of scientists theorising about the nature of the beast, and teams of generally reasonable, surprisingly enough, politicians trying to facilitate a response within the bounds of a law framework not entirely set up to deal with kaiju. These last points give us a window to say that this film is therefore a response to the Fukushima meltdown, in the same way as the original was a response to the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, inasmuch as a giant stompy laser monster can be described as a response to anything. Let's not pretend this is a work of great social commentary, huh? No, it is a monster movie, and so how good is the monster? Well, it gets better, I should say. Godzilla's first form, a googly-eyed floppy mess, is downright laughable, but once it evolves into the classic Godzilla form, it's a bit more acceptable. It's still beholden to the past, though, giving us a CG creation that looks and moves a great deal like a bloke in a suit, which on paper seems like the worst of both worlds. And in practice, I suppose it is, but it's still somehow charming. I'm not altogether sure I can defend it on any rational level, but I guess there's enough goodwill left over from the early classic Toho Godzilla films to nostalgia over any cracks in this reboot. That's despite it often coming across like a mega shark film that takes itself very seriously. However, I'm not entirely sure who the audience for this film is. Fans of the earlier Toho series, before it succumbed to excess, will no doubt welcome this, and there's much more schlock fun to be had here than in Gareth Edwards' films, but if you're new to the main Japanese wing of the franchise, it may be a bit too... Uh, trite, maybe, to land with an audience? Nonetheless, I enjoyed it quite a lot. What you would take from it? Hmm, I'm not so sure, therefore I award this question mark out of five.
So that takes us to the end of this episode. I hope that we'll be back to closer to full strength next time. If you would like to get in touch with us, please do. There's a number of ways to do so. You can do it from Twitter. That's at FudsOnFilm. Facebook, facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm. Or through the emails, podcast at FudsOnFilm.com. We'd be delighted to hear from you. And until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Goodbye. <laughs>